So y'all turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Back in December 1944, Sergeant Lester Tanner, a Jewish-American soldier in the American army, was captured during the Battle of the Bulge in Belgium, uh, and he was taken to a prisoner of war camp that was operated by the Germans. There were 1,275 men in that camp. Uh, and all of the Jewish soldiers before the battle had even started had thrown away their dog tags because they knew that the dog tag lists your religion. They knew if I'm captured and my dog tag says Jewish, I'm in trouble. And yet they weren't really out of danger because on the first day that, that Sergeant Tanner was there, the German commandant, a major, stood up in front of them and said, tomorrow morning, every Jewish soldier will line up in formation out in front of the barracks. And they knew what that meant. But then after the, the commandant was gone, the ranking officer in that camp was a, a man named Sergeant Robbie Edmonds from Knoxville, Tennessee, who happened to be a Protestant Christian and a man who took his faith seriously. And he said to all 1,275 soldiers, every single one of you will be there tomorrow. Every one of us, Jewish, Gentile, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. If you're sick, I don't care. You better be dead if you're not out there because every one of us is gonna stand in formation. And sure enough, the next morning when the German commandant came to review the troops, he saw 1,275 American soldiers, all the prisoners in the camp standing in formation. And he said, this is not all the Jews. This is all the soldiers. And he, he told the, the staff sergeant, he told Sergeant Robbie Edmonds, you will, you will command the other soldiers to go back to their barracks. And he didn't speak and no one else moved. And he unholstered his Luger and he pointed it at Edmund's head. He said, you will command every Jewish soldier to take one step forward or I will shoot you. And Edmund said, you go ahead, Major. And if you do, you better kill every one of us because you and I both know this war is almost over. And you and I both know who's gonna win. And if you leave even one of us alive, we'll testify to what you've done and you will face trial for your crimes. And he holstered his weapon and walked away. Now, this is, this is not something I'm making up. This was a story told by Sergeant Tanner, the, the Jewish-American soldier. He, he believed that this man, Sergeant Edmonds, had saved his life through his courage. And we love stories like that on July the 4th or any time of the year. We love to hear about the men and women whose courage, whose character made us the nation we are today. And yet we also hear stories like that and we feel a sense of, uh, of bittersweetness, uh, of nostalgia, a sense that we've lost something as a country. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like every person in 1940s America was a hero. We had our, our share of, of crooks and, and cheaters and traitors and war profiteers, just like we do today. And today we have heroes, just like we did back then. There are men and women in this room who are, who are genuine American heroes. And there are men and women in this room who will go on to do heroic things after this day. But there's a reason why we call that generation the greatest generation. Because when a worldwide depression hit, they survived it. When a worldwide war broke out, when fascism threatened to destroy Western civilization, our country came together. Think about it, for a period of 15 years or so, our country was under the, the most severe test it could possibly imagine, and we came out shining. Because, why? Because every man and woman came together. 
because this country came together. Not just the men who went overseas and fought, the families that sent them there, the families, some of whom ended up putting gold stars in their windows because their boys weren't coming home. The the men and women and children who participated in rubber drives and sugar drives and and every other kind of, uh, uh, of time where they had to do with less to support the effort overseas, planting victory gardens, praying for the troops. Our country came together. And then we look at our country in 2020 and the worldwide pandemic hits and we fractured further apart rather than coming together. And so in moments like this, we say, what can we do to fix the problems of our country? And it's common for us as Christians, especially American Christians, to quote 2 Chronicles 7.14 in cases like this. On days like July the 4th, on days like the National Day of Prayer in May or Memorial Day or, or Veterans Day or any time we are concerned for the, for the course our country is on, we want to quote 2 Chronicles 7.14 which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And we're in a series about taking scripture out of context. Last week, I I listened yesterday to Michael's sermon from last week when he talked about the passage in Matthew where Jesus says, judge not that you may not be judged. And how people use that to say, well, I'm not responsible for anybody else's life. I can't interfere if someone else is headed down the wrong road. That's not my place to judge their life. And Michael showed very effectively from scripture, that is not what that verse means. It is our responsibility to bear the burdens of our loved ones and our neighbors and our friends. And that sometimes means telling them the hard truth. To really love somebody is to speak truth to them, even if they say, hey, you're judging me. No, I'm loving you. In the same way, we can use this scripture, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, in a way that means something that it doesn't actually mean in scripture. When you hear Christians quote this scripture, what they often mean is they're looking back to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And even though most of them who quote this didn't live through that age, including me, what they say is, well, back then there was a moral consensus in our country. When all of us, when, when the, the consensus among Americans, no matter whether you were religious or not, no matter what your race was, your political affiliation, we all pretty much agreed, this is what it means to be a good person. These are the ideals that we as a society should aspire to. Here's what it means. Here are the good guys. Here are the bad guys. Here's, here are the forces we should fight against. We were together in that sense. And so when you went to school, when you sent your kids to school, they affirmed those principles. Even when you went off to college, the the colleges saw themselves as their role is, is, is building men and women who embodied those principles. And even the entertainment industry seemed to uphold those ideals as you saw stories of courage and compassion and heroism. Can you imagine today that an actor like Jimmy Stewart would be the biggest a star in Hollywood like he was in the 1940s, a man who stood for what he stood for. I mean, we look at 2 Second Chronicles 7.14 and we say, okay, if we pray hard enough, we'll return to that kind of America. It, to put it more bluntly, we'll be in America where someone who simply refuses to bake a cake that celebrates something he doesn't believe in because it's unbiblical would not be sued in federal court. Someone like Judge Mack, who's a, who's a Christian man and a, and a, and a county ju- or a, a local judge here in our community, would not be sued by people simply for 
beginning each court day in prayer. Why? Because the winds of culture would be against people who would harass someone who's simply trying to do what Scripture says. And we think that if we pray 2 Chronicles 7.14, that means that people like that who seek to harass those who stand up for biblical principles will be punished, will be cast out, will, that the winds of culture will go against them, that they will be forced to either change or leave. That's what we believe. But is it what the Bible says? Well, like I said a few weeks ago, you have to ask, what do the surrounding scriptures say? Don't just take one verse and look at what you think it means. Look at what the whole chapter says and then ask, who was it written to? And then ask, what does the whole Bible say? Is there anything that I believe is a result of this verse that actually contradicts the whole teaching of scripture? So let's look at that first question. What is chapter seven about? Second Chronicles 7 is the story of God appearing to Solomon. Solomon, the, the son of David, the third king of Israel. Solomon, as you know, this isn't the first time he's seen God. The first time God appeared to Solomon, God came to him and said, you're a new king, I love you, I will give you anything you ask. And Solomon was smart enough to say, Lord, I'm, I'm a young guy, I can't possibly follow in the, follow in the footsteps of my father, David. You need, I, I need for you to give me wisdom. If there's one thing I can ask for, it is the, the knowledge of right and wrong so I can make good decisions so I can lead your people well. And God gave him that. In the early days of Solomon's reign, he was the wisest king who has ever lived and ever will live until King Jesus reigns over this world. And in chapter six, we see Solomon build the temple of God in Jerusalem. For the first time, the people of God had a, had a stable structure in which to worship the Lord. Since the days of Moses, they'd been worshiping in the tabernacle, which was just a tent. But now they had this, this cedar-built and gold-lined cathedral where they could come and offer their sacrifices and hear about the Lord. And in chapter six of Second Chronicles, Solomon prays this long, eloquent prayer. I, I, I just challenge you to read it sometime, maybe even today, where he says, Lord, this is your house and we pray that you would always meet with us there and we know that we're gonna sin. We know that we're gonna mess up and when we sin, there's gonna be consequences and when those consequences come and we come back to you and pray, Lord, please forgive us. What I'm asking you, Lord, is would you show mercy to us? Would you never cast us out forever? And at the end of Solomon's prayer, something amazing happened. A fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifices that were waiting on the altars. And a cloud from heaven, the, the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory, filled the temple so full that no one could even see to do their sacrifices or practice their worship. And then after that, Solomon built his own palace, a house for him and his wives, because there were many of them, to live. Solomon built that palace. It took him 13 years. It took him seven years to build the temple. Does that tell you that Solomon's heart was starting to turn away from God? That he was willing to spend more time on his own glory than on the glory of God? We know the end of the story for Solomon. His heart eventually goes after the gods of his many wives, and he, he compromises his faith. So at the end of the building of the, tem of, the, of the palace, after 13 years, God comes to Solomon and that's when he says, 2 Corinthians 7, 14, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, he says, you know what you prayed all those years ago? I'm gonna do it. And I think his reason for waiting was to say, Solomon, your heart is starting to turn away from me. I want you to remember that I and I alone am your salvation. Come to me, come to me. Don't go after these other things. They can't save you, but I can. God was setting a pattern for the rest of the Old Testament. If you ever read the Old Testament, which I know is a challenge, 
You'll know that, especially in those historic books in the very middle, Second King, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we see the same pattern happen over and over again. The people of God will start to drift like Solomon did. And they'll say, yeah, I believe in God, but man, I sure want a good harvest, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna offer sacrifice to the God of the harvest. I, I, sure, I, I believe in God, but I, I sure want my, my cows to have healthy calves, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray to the God of fertility. And we do the same thing today as Christians. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that can save my soul, but I sure do want to be happy. So I'm going to, I'm going to actually put my work towards building a financial empire that will never go away. My wealth will be my true God. Jesus will save my soul, but my wealth will make me happy. We never say that, but that's the way we live. Lord, I, I need you to, to, uh, to save me and, and to forgive me, but you know, my real priority is getting my kid on the right select baseball team or my daughter on the right dance group or, or my kids into the right college. So that's going to be my actual priority. We haven't changed since those days. The Israelites did it and they experienced the bitter fruits of their disobedience. And every time they'd come running back to God and say, okay, Lord, it's our fault that we're experiencing plague or famine or invasion by a foreign army. We need to come back to you. Will you forgive us? And every time, 2 Chronicles 7.14 held true. Every time God brought them home. Even when the Israelites strayed so far from God, they literally lost the promised land. Temple was burned to the ground. The walls of Jerusalem were demolished. The people were carried away to a foreign country, Babylon, where they were told, hey, just be good Babylonians, worship our gods, learn our language. You know, that's happened to people throughout history. And every time the same thing happens, that people, when they lose their land, they lose their identity. Have you met a Hittite recently or a Sumerian or a Phoenician? There's a reason for that because they got conquered, they got carried away, they got assimilated. That should have happened to Israel too. But 2 Chronicles 7.14 held true. And when the people in a foreign land said, Lord, this is our fault, please forgive us. God said, absolutely. And he brought them home. You ever wondered why there's still a Jewish people today? If you know anything about history, you know that kings and despots and governments and empires have, over and over again have tried their best to eliminate this little tiny group of people and they're still around. You want objective proof that God exists? Think about the fact that the Jewish people are still around because God made a promise to them that he's not gonna break. So I say all that to say, if you look at 2 Chronicles 7.14 and you say, okay, this is a verse about making America great and bringing us back to our glory days, you're trying to cash a check that's written to somebody else. This verse is not written to the United States of America. It's not written to any country on earth today, not even modern day Israel. It's written to, as God says, my people who are called by my name. Now that doesn't mean it no longer applies. How does it apply to us? Why is it still good news for us? Because who are the people of God today? Who are the people who are called by the name of God today? Galatians 3 tells us. Galatians 3 tells us that any person, any human being, black, white, brown, yellow, Jew, Gentile, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, uh, Episcopalian, Pentecostal, Church of Christ, non-denominational, Orthodox, whatever you want to name, if you call Jesus your king, if you've received his grace, then you are part of the family of God. You are one of the chosen ones. You've been rescued. You've been brought into his family and you will always be there. And so this promise applies to us. So what does it mean when it says he will heal our land? It means he will heal 
us, the people of God. We don't have a land. There's no Christian land today. We have the church. We have the people of God. We have the body of Christ. What does it look like when God heals his people today? Well, this is what I picture. If you can imagine a day coming when every church in the United States big and small, was packed with people who weren't there to impress others or to get a blessing. They were there to say, Lord, I am here to learn about you, to worship you, and to learn how to love my neighbor better. And yeah, I'm a teacher, I'm a personal trainer, I'm a contractor, I'm an attorney, I'm a housewife, but what I am mostly is I'm, a, I'm just a humble person who wants to be the hands and feet and the voice of Jesus wherever you place me. So show me how to do that. And if that becomes our identity again, as it's been in the past, then suddenly you'll see churches that don't just go to church on Sunday and then leave and go, okay, glad that's over, but actually cooperate together across denominations to say, okay, here's a problem in our community. Let's solve it. Let's let's bring the love of Christ to the people we live around and show them, let's do what Jesus would do if he was here. When Jesus was here, he didn't pass somebody who was hurting without helping them. That would be what Christians do today. And you would see racial discrimination and racial division solved. You would see addictions broken. You would see broken families reconciled. You would see churches full of people who were so lovingly and joyfully married to one another that the world would look at us and go, okay, I want what you've got. I I need that in my home. You would, see, you would see Christians give so generously to the cause of missions and be willing themselves to go when God and where God sent them, you would see the globe change because we'd see so many people taking the gospel around the world. You'd see abortion rates go down in this country, not because of anything the Supreme Court does, but simply because there'd be fewer unwanted children. You'd see, you'd see crime rates go down, not because we made new, made new laws or, or solved some kind of uh, intricate problem, but because we were addressing the root causes that cause crime. Now, I'm not saying that every problem would be solved. That's not gonna happen until Jesus is king of this world. We're always gonna have problems and issues, but you would see a tangible change in the emotional and spiritual and economic health of our country and God would get the glory. And most of all, best of all, untold millions of people would hear the gospel for the very first time. They've heard it, many of them, but now they'd really hear it because they'd realize this isn't religion. This is God's power on earth. This is good news. See, another way to say this is when God heals his people, we start producing more people like Sergeant Robbie Edmonds, people of courage and character and such selfless love that even the most hardcore atheist looks and says, there's something to this Jesus stuff. I just can't deny it. It means that we start giving our neighbors reasons to believe instead of excuses to turn away from the living God. Do you want to see that happen? Does that sound good to you? Because I, I got to tell you, that's what I desire. That's why I went into the ministry. That's why I continue coming to church in hopes that that will happen someday. And I believe that it will because it has before. 
And I'm not just talking about in scripture. I mean, the, the historians have, have, have identified at least three great awakenings in the history of our nation. Times when the spirit of God fell so obviously upon this country that no one could deny it and thousands were saved and lives were changed and whole communities were transformed. And you can look at, at it happening in the world today. Here's a quick trivia question. Do you know which country experts say is gonna be the most Christian nation in the world by 2040? And by that, I mean the country with the most Christians in it, China. Can you believe that? A, a nation that hasn't had religious freedom in, in, almost, in, almost, in over half a century, where the government is literally trying its best to wipe out the church, is a place where the gospel's spreading, exploding. Iran is another one. Iran is, is a nation where, where the Muslim government makes it literally illegal to convert someone to Christ, but it's not stopping the gospel. You talk to missionaries who operate in places like South America and Sub-Saharan Africa, and they tell stories of whole villages coming to Christ at a time and, and people coming to Jesus by the thousands and, and lives being changed in literal miracles like you read about in the Bible. And that's happening on earth right now, and it can happen here. So what do we what do we need to do? I mean, you and I, there's no, there's no vision that I have. I, I can't, there's no strategy I can give you. God has to do this, but he's given us instructions if we want to see it happen. And the instructions are three, and you read them with me. Number one, humble yourself. We've got to humble ourselves first. Let me ask you a quick question. This is the question I want you to wrestle with. In your opinion, what is the biggest threat to Christianity in America today? Is it something external? Is it something from the outside? Is it, is it forces of unbelief? Is it government pressure? Is it something from external, something from outside of us seeking to stop us? Is that our biggest threat? Or is it something internal? Is it the fact that we ourselves need to change? See, when I listen to Christian radio, when I, when I read Christian, uh, Christians posting on social media, when I hear people talking uh, in, the, in the hallways, I get the impression that what we're most concerned about is, is atheism spreading on college campuses and political correctness being forced down our throats and threats to religious freedom and the promotion of non-biblical ideas about gender and sexuality in our schools and on the media. And yeah, I'm concerned about those things too. But is that the biggest threat we face today? See, the only way to answer that question is to look at Jesus. Because when Jesus came into this world, when Jesus lived on this earth for over 30 years, that was God in human flesh living among us. And at that time, the people of God faced, I dare say, an external threat far greater than anything we face in the United States today. And that was the Roman Empire. Rome dominated everything. And, and so Jesus grew up seeing soldiers from a foreign power on the street corners of, Je of Nazareth where he grew up. He grew up hearing stories of atrocities committed by Romans against his people. He grew up knowing, knowing that he and his people were not truly free. He also grew up knowing that there were Jews who were starting to assimilate into Roman and Greek culture. And you would hear stories, you know, so I'm sure he heard a, a, a mom saying to Mary, his mother, I, I just can't believe that my son Josiah is, is starting to call himself Jason and dress in Roman garb and go to the bathhouse and to the theater and to the games. And he's, he's more Greek than he is Jewish. And I don't know what to do. Does that sound like parents today, Christian parents today? Absolutely. The world hasn't changed that much. But ask yourself the question, how many times did Jesus talk about those things in the Gospels? 
How many times did Jesus stand up and say, we need to rise up and overthrow Rome? We need to take back our country and send these pagans packing. Did Jesus consider that external threat his main priority? No, he never even talked about it. Instead, his harsh words were for his own people. Sometimes when I talk about this topic, people will push back to me and say, Jeff, you make it sound like we're supposed to always be nice and kind to people who are unbelievers, but didn't Jesus say some really harsh things? And I say, absolutely he did, but look him up. Every single time he was talking to one of his own people. He said harsh things to his own people. Why? Not because he hated the Jews. He was one. No, he said harsh things because he said, you guys know the truth and you're not living by it. Why are we mad at the Romans for acting like Romans? Why are we mad at pagans for acting like pagans? They're just proving God is right. But you're denying the truth. You're whitewashed tombs. You pretend. You're hypocrites. You put on a mask. You're not living what you say you believe. And I gotta believe that it hasn't changed. If Jesus was here today, he would, he would look at us and say, why are you getting so worked up about the unbelievers in your cities, in your culture, in your government, in your, in your education system? Why are you getting so worked up about these people who are simply acting like you would if you didn't know me? Why not instead look to yourself and say, what needs to change is us. So when God says, humble yourself, he means go to him in prayer and say, Lord, Forgive me for blaming everybody else when really it's us. It's our fault. Because if we were the church, if we were the people of God, if we were the hands and feet of Jesus, there is no force on earth that could stop us. And it's happening in China right now, and it happened 2,000 years ago in the early church, and it could happen again today if we just humbled ourselves. Healing begins when we admit we're the problem. And we need help. Number two, pray and seek his face. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say everybody in this room prays at some point or another. In fact, most of you probably pray every day of your life. If you're a Christian at all, you've learned when I'm in trouble, I go to God. I cry out to him for help. Now, maybe one or two of you who are here today saying, I don't pray, Jeff, because I haven't figured out who this God is. Thank you. Please keep coming back until you figure it out. I'd love to help you. And if you're a Christian and you pray every day and you've got a list, a laundry list of things you're asking him for, you're doing exactly what the Bible said to do. But how often do you pray with no agenda, no list, just saying, Lord, I want to seek your face, not your hand that can give me stuff, just your face. I just want to know you. Like, like Moses a few weeks ago that we looked at in Exodus, Lord, show me your glory. How often do you just sit and worship him, sit and learn more about him, sit and become more like him? And you say, hey, Jeff, I'm just not that spiritual. When I try to just sit and bask in God's glory after 30 seconds, my mind wanders onto something else. So I've got to, I, I just can't do that. And, and you know what? I'm the same way. I hate to let you in on a dirty little secret, but when they, when they laid hands on me and ordained me, or when they handed me a degree from a seminary, that didn't suddenly make me more spiritual than you. The truth is, by nature, I'm just as earthly and, and, and worldly and self-centered as anybody in this room. But you know what? When I was a little kid, I didn't like good food either. If my parents would have left me to my own devices, I would have, I would have lived on nothing but donuts and moon pies and uh, French fries and Cheetos and Hershey's 
chocolate bars. I mean, I, I liked everything that was bad for me and nothing that was good for me. But somewhere along in my growing up years, and it helped that I had parents who were a little obsessive about, no, you will eat that. You will eat that or you won't get up from the table. I'm, my parents were not the kind like today who just said, oh yeah, sure, you can have chicken nuggets for the 13th time in the row. No, you're gonna eat what your mom made you. And at some point I said, you know, I, I would like to get you know, taller than five feet someday, which I am, by the way. Uh, you know, I'd like to have a little bit of muscle tone someday. I'd like to be able to, you know, lift a little bit of weight and run a little bit fast. So I'm going to have to learn to eat some things that are actually good for me. And you know what happened? When I put in that effort, I actually learned to like that stuff. I'm not saying I don't also like hot fudge sundaes and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I like broccoli and I like green beans, and I like salad, and I like good lean chicken meat, and I love, I love a good protein shake. I mean, I've learned to love those things, and God can do the same thing for your spiritual nature too. No, it's not in your nature to yearn for the things of God, but you come to him and say, Lord, I know that you are what I need, so teach me. Teach me to yearn for, to hunger for you. When we humble ourselves, when we begin to seek his face, and then when we turn from our wicked ways, there is healing. Turning from your wicked ways, that's what we call repentance. There's a myth in Christianity that repentance means going to God and saying, Lord, I messed up, please forgive me. Well, that's just the start. True repentance is not just saying the words, it's doing a, a literal U-turn where you turn away from what you've done, where you say, okay, Lord, what I did breaks my heart and I take full responsibility and I'm going to set up some moral fences in my life so I never go down that road again. I need your help to make those fences hold. Imagine a marriage in which the, the wife comes to the husband and says, listen, I, I'm, I'm so sorry, I have to confess to you, I've been unfaithful. Is there any way you can forgive me? And imagine the husband against all the odds says, absolutely, I forgive you. But what if she doesn't break off the relationship? What if she keeps seeing this other guy? It doesn't matter how sincere she sounds when she says, I'm sorry. There can be forgiveness, but there can't be reconciliation. There's no reconciliation until she divorces himself from this other person. Three people don't make a marriage, two do. This is why all throughout the Old Testament, Adultery and idolatry are, are compared to one another. God says over and over again to Israel, to faithless Israel, you need to divorce yourself from your lovers, your false gods, and come back to me. And then and only then can we have the relationship that we need to have. And that's what God's calling you and I to do today. Calling us to stand before God and say, Lord, yeah, you are my God, you are my Savior, but I admit to you that money is way too important to me. I admit to you that, uh, that, that my, the approval of others matters way too much. I, I admit to you that, yeah, I love you, but what I put most of my work into is making sure the people that I believe in get elected because that's my, my true God, my true hope. Lord, I, I love you, but my, my work, that's what I care about. Lord, I love you, but the physical condition of my body, that's what I care about. Lord, I love you, but getting pleasure... That's what I chase. We come to God and we say, Lord, I wanna, I wanna be the kind of person who obeys you completely, who puts those other things in their place. And I, I'm gonna just confess my sin to you today and just trust that you're gonna forgive and you're gonna change me. And when we start to do that, repentance is the beginning of healing
That's true of any relationship, a friendship, a marriage, husband and wife, father, son, daughter, mother, and it's true in the relationship between God and us. So what does this all mean? What does 2 Chronicles 7.14 mean? It means that individually, each one of us, every day need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Why would we ever start a day without getting before God in a quiet place and saying, Lord, I can't do this without you? Humble yourself. Turn from your wicked ways. That means confess your sin openly to God and to the people you've sinned against. If there's somebody you know that's been hurt by something you've done, either yesterday or, or 10 years ago, why not go to them and say, without excuses, without asking for anything in return, here's what I know I did to you, and here's what I'm going to do to make it up to you, and I'm doing this not for any other reason but to honor the Lord. And, and when, we, when we begin to repent and we begin to focus on, I just want to know God better and be more like Jesus, that's when healing begins. And when you say, Lord, let this thing that's happening in my heart, because I'm starting to grow, because I'm doing these three things, let this spread throughout my church. Let this spread throughout my community, throughout this county, throughout this state, throughout this nation. That's when awakening happens. That's when healing begins. On our nation's birthday, the most patriotic thing that any Christian can possibly do is to devote themselves to bringing about this kind of promise, fulfilling God's faithful promise to heal his people in our generation. Do you want to see that happen?